Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Episode 15 of Hashing It Out. As always, I'm here with Colin Couchet. Say what's up, Colin. What's up, Colin? I'm Dr. Corey Petty, and today we are interviewing Foam. We have Ryan, the CEO, and Christopher, the CTO. Why don't you guys give us a quick introduction, uh, start with Ryan, then go with Christopher, as to who you are, how you got into space, and uh, what Foam is. Uh, Hey, so I'm Ryan, uh, co-founder of Foam and CEO um, Foam is a location protocol for blockchain, so we're thinking about secure location standards um, and ways to kind of verify things in the world. I started working on Foam about three years ago, um, really thinking about how to, can we capture the value of space and location using blockchain technology. Uh, and the project has kind of evolved quite a bit um, through them, and uh, that's how I also came across uh, Christopher in the early days of blockchain and reconnected to Ben. So. Yeah, uh, my name is Christopher. Uh... CTO of Foam. Um, I have a background in mathematics and geometry in particular. Uh, I've been working uh, in the blockchain space for about three, four years now. Uh, I have a strong interest, well, besides for mathematics and geometry, which sort of now starts playing in in Foam. Uh, I have also have a strong uh, interest in programming language theory, and I'm an avid functional programmer programming enthusiast um and so at foam uh i've been architecting the um proof of location stack but also sort of from bottom up a uh, functional programming stack around ethereum all right i think a good way to start off at least the introduction to what this is because there's what you said earlier before we started there's a couple layers to this before we even get into proof of location but before we start getting into those technical layers uh let's start with why the hell should we care about proof of location yeah a great question um so the way we were approaching foam and how we started originally is thinking about um you know all the things people think about when they think about decentralization and the amazing apps it can bring and we were always thinking about them in the lens of the physical environment the city um so, you know, ways to activate spaces, give tokens to people, all sorts of applications. And we realized um, in all of them, you kind of need some sort of fraud-proofed mechanism to actually check things. That's why how blockchains work and that you actually need some sort of consensus um, on th- where things claim to be if they're going to be interacting with a smart contract. Because smart contracts are autonomous, they execute permissionlessly, and GPS doesn't cut it. It's trivial to spoof or make up a GPS signal, and it's not verifiable. But even more broadly, we realize there are no location standards at all in blockchain. And so that's why we have other elements to the project like uh, location encoding standards and this visualizer stack that we've built as a visual blockchain explorer. Um, so we're really then trying to bring those location tools and standards into blockchain to empower developers. And the proof of location aspect is what is kind of like the fraud proof aspect. So what kind of early use cases are you identifying for this particular technology? Uh, so we have a developer portal that we've launched, um, developer.foam.space, where you can get access to the API and start building front-end mapping tools. We already have some people doing that. Uh, for example, a team called Spacer Network. Uh, they're building uh, AR-based NFT game and building on top of our standards. And we have like another team doing shared co-working spaces, um, also building into those standards. And we've made integrations with wallets like Status, uh, Uport, and things like that. So that's really where the Ethereum users are. Uh, using our tools to start, but we're also part of a lot of consortium groups and different verticals like mobility and supply chain. Yeah, I, I kind of see a good starting point for a lot of this until I guess maybe the robustness or standardization has gotten more solidified or ossified as um, a way for gamers to incorporate location-based benefits, bonuses, something into the game that they have. Like, you take it, like the, the obvious example, I think, is like Pokemon Go. 
but a blockchain version of that that has proof of location or some type of attribute based on certain location. Um, do you do you see kind of the similar route of like games incorporating this type of thing first until industry standards become a little more robust and they start adopting it for things like supply chain or tracking certain assets and the sensor data around that asset? Yeah, definitely. We actually spoke to some of the early workers at Niantic on Pokemon Go and there's actually a real latent demand for more secure location services. So they've suffered an enormous amount of GPS spoofing so that people can leave their phone at their table and characters are running around the city. And they even had people hacking OpenStreetMap to alter the geography to change how Pokemon were generated. And the team said they had a lot of amazing ideas for bringing ad revenue to stores or proving all these things, but they had all these limitations of just not being able to verify things or stop on spoofing that they felt um, they could actually even achieve the full vision of Pokemon Go. So it's definitely gaming is a place that the protocol can start and it's a great use case for why location verification is needed. All right. Well, then let's, let's move into a little more of the technical side of these things. Like it's, it's important that you say you, you, you're working on these things and that you're working on kind of a trustless proof of location that doesn't require central authorities. How can we be sure that you can do that? How are you doing it that gives us that type of guarantee? Uh, well, the, we have kind of like two kinds of proof of location that we call static and dynamic. Um, static is on like curating points of interest, things that don't move. So like, uh, and that's based on the map. And for that, we're using a token curator registry. Uh, the full-fledged dynamic proof of location is based on um, triangulations and time synchronization protocols over radio uh, as like an alternative to GPS. And because it's bi-directional, um, customers can kind of purchase claims about themselves where GPS is purely passive. So kind of how we're approaching it. Can you be more specific? Like say if I were to, I say I wanted to contribute to the network, what do I need to do to get started? I mean, what, and what, is there something, is it, is it, you eventually see this as something as like a naive user contributing passively or somebody that needs to run a lot of incentivized nodes to then provide data to the entire network so that apps can use, build on top of it? Uh, yeah, it's a completely imagined to be a permissionless system so that anybody can purchase the hardware and run uh, the protocol in the same way anyone can participate in Bitcoin or Ethereum. Um, so there's a lot of like radio enthusiasts and people running this kind of equipment already, and we want to provide the incentive mechanisms to really build up the supply side. So there's an actual physical device associated with this protocol. Can you go into a little more about what that looks like? Yeah, so uh, the protocol is a radio agnostic, um, works works up to one clock tick of synchronizing, but we're looking at right now a class of radio called low power wide area network radios, specifically one called LoRa, um, and those goes up to like 10 miles um, with a 10 year battery life. Uh, so those are the kind of devices that we're currently building on. Yeah, I've actually heard about that. That's pretty cool. I think I've, uh, the use case I've heard most, most frequently that is basically tracking cows uh, in fields. So it's really cool to hear that, that alternative use case for that kind of stuff. I know it's getting a lot of traction in Europe, especially. I think that's really neat that um, you guys are leveraging that technology. It's, it's underutilized right now. What made you yeah. look into that in particular? Uh, we were just doing all the research of the kinds of radios available, and uh, LoRa specifically is permissionless, so you don't need to pay a royalty fee to deploy it, and that's kind of why it has so many of these communities using it, even though there are also enterprise uses, so it's extremely cheap, um, it's ready deployed, there's communities around it, and it's accessible, so we thought that was a great starting point. It's also particularly low power to run, too, isn't it? Oh, uh, yeah, that's the class of radio they're in, low power. Radius. Yeah, so you don't you don't need a significant source of energy in order to you know even even do this kind of work, which is which is really great if you're trying to deploy mobile devices. That's really neat. What um what is the protocol like? Are you broad since it's got a radius of of uh ten miles, I believe. Uh, is it ten miles? Um, is that what you said earlier? Um, uh, that's like a maximum if you imagine in like a pure line of sight environment, like a desert. Yeah. Um, but it's really going to be a function of, you know, multi-path density of buildings, uh, how many nodes are nearby, et cetera. 
So let's just say you have a bunch of nodes nearby. Is that is that using you're using that to create kind of a local consensus on where that is it triangulation? How are you determining where the actual? How are you confirming that something is actually where it says it is? Uh, yes. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Christopher. Yeah. Well, so uh, as Ryan kind of alluded to before, like what what we really the novel addition to uh, compared to GPS is that it's a it's a two way system, right? So um, we're uh, using the principle that in the same way that you can when you have line of sight of multiple GPS satellites, which you by design have at any given moment on Earth, you can trilaterate your position relative to their position, which is known in advance. The, the um, reverse also holds. So if you could imagine that, in principle, if you were able to send out a signal that would be reached by all of the GPS satellites, because they know that they are synchronized with respect to each other, they could trilaterate your position relative to theirs. Now, that's not how GPS works for, multi for many reasons. Uh, it was never designed to do something like that. But in principle, if you had the power and if the GPS satellites would be able to decode your message, they wouldn't be able to find your position. What the radio network that we are deploying allows us to do is this, but uh, without any of the hurdles that GPS would uh, put in place. So um, when the... Uh, radio beacons are synchronized, any uh, participant can send out a message that they can then decode and calculate the relative offsets in time of arrival and therefore attest to your location relative to them. And because you've signed the message that you uh, have sent out with your signature, you can effectively unlock this uh, location claim or presence claim, as we call it, at a later stage. So when these beacons receive your message, they calculate the relative time offsets and they uh, vouch, so to speak, for that on the blockchain. And that's what you use later on to unlock your presence claim. So this is very dependent upon there being multiple nodes receiving your message, which means that it is dependent upon the density of your network in various areas. And so yes. you're not, you're, this, is, this is not something that can be useful, at least initially, in low population-dense areas. Well, that's where sort of... Yeah, so even theoretically, you would not be able to do this without the three uh, nodes. And mm -hmm. so what happens in practice is that when you have more than three nodes, you kind of sort of find an average between the potential locations you could have been to with any three respective mm -hmm. um, subsets, right? Mm -hmm. And in principle, the more you have, the better accuracy you get. It's a little bit more involved in that, but there are algorithms that lets you find sort of the best average. Um, when you visualize these networks, or uh, it's easy to think that they're pretty sparse, but when you actually look at for example, in the case of LoRa, that you have a 10-mile radius, <clears throat> the overlapping zones of, you know, let's say three or four beacons within a couple of miles radius is much bigger than those two miles that they are, their relative distances are, because the overlap goes outside sort of the region which they are all within. So it's a little bit un unintuitive, but even in relatively sparse regions, you have a large enough, you have a large coverage, assuming that you have more than four nodes within a, the region you're approximating. And I'd also add that that's really where the crypto economics come in. So, you know, time synchronization and alternatives to GPS are possible today. And uh, as I mentioned, in many verticals like supply chain or mobility or Pokemon, there is a latent demand for new kinds of location verification, but the cost of launching a whole new network is too high for any one actor. Um, and that instead, they just take extra steps for fraud prevention and uh, spoofing prevention. 
Um, but we're really then focused on bringing crypto economics into the fold where, you know, this technology is cheap and accessible, but there's no real reason for people to be running it at scale. And that's why uh, we have a mining reward as a way to kind of build out the supply side of the infrastructure and really subsidize uh, the cost of running them before there is this robust ecosystem of location customers on smart contracts. I'm assuming that's where your token comes in. Is uh, it's it's the incentive layer for getting people to actually participate in the network to then provide better and better quality services to those using the network. Is that the gist of of it? Yeah. Um, so we do have a mining reward uh, to incentivize more nodes, but it's also spatially weighted, and there's a component of the protocol called signaling. So you can actually stake tokens on the map um, to signify that you actually want coverage to happen there. And the block reward will be like weighted higher in those areas. So that's another way we're using these crypto economic designs to try to incentivize coverage growth and, and the supply side. Oh, so like if I were to maybe give an example of that, say I'm, I'm, I built an application in a certain area that's relatively sparse in terms of uh, people contributing. I can then weight my node so that people who contribute to add to the density around me can then get a higher reward because of the money that I've staked into the network. Yeah, exactly. Um, you actually still own your stake of the signal, but the um, mining contract will be reading all these signals. And so the tokens will be mined disproportionately geographically based on where there's a demand or where people are saying they want it to occur. That's interesting. So it also increases sparsity of the token. I'm just thinking about in terms of crypto economics and how that works out for someone who's actually using the network. They're not giving, they're not basically staking and, and then contributing to the network in terms of their tokens, they're just saying there's a lot of demand here. The more people who uh, come in this area. Yeah, for that signaling component, but otherwise the token is like a work token. So you need it um, to stake to run these then zone anchors, we call them, these radio devices. And that's really like a service level agreement that you're saying you're going to be running the protocol correctly and you have the safety deposit to prove it. Can we, can we, can you verify? Like, clear up the term mine in, in the context of, of your network? Is it is it a standard like proof of work mining consensus algorithm like Bitcoin would have? Or is it um, specifically tailored towards what you're doing? And so you're saying it's like the minting of the token is kind of how new tokens join the network or like how, how does that all work out? Yeah, so the proof of location actually utilizes three kinds of um, consen- Byzantine fault tolerant consensus. Um, and so it's synchronous, partially synchronous, and asynchronous. So first we have the synchronous time synchronization protocol running over radio, uh, and each zone is running it. It's a Byzantine fault tolerant uh, protocol, and they can determine their locations um, based on the time of arrival relative to each other. Um, but then each zone needs to kind of share a state machine and uh, keep a log of all that time data. And for that, we're using Tendermint, um, which is a partially synchronous uh, BFT consensus algorithm. And so the actual um, software side of the time sync protocol is written uh, as an ABCI application uh, for Tendermint. And, but ultimately then the, we use a root chain to like stake and have access to be running any of those zones uh, on a child chain. And uh, that staking would occur on something like Ethereum. So then you're relying on this asynchronous consensus. And that's where the final proofs or the presence claims will be posted, as well as the verifiers saying if a zone is running correctly or incorrectly. Um, and from there, new tokens, foam tokens, would be minted and distributed um, based on them running that time protocol. So you have to contribute work um, and be checked that you're doing it correctly, and then new tokens would be minted and distributed to you. That is that's quite interesting. I like the kind of the 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 the, the approach of I don't want to call it blockchains and blockchains, but using the various. Um, systems and networks that we have together to provide a novel a novel service that's desperately needed and, and kind of staking it into where the main value is at least in its current form do you have plans to continue along that roadmap or is it is it um like are you are you i guess partial to the specific back-end implementations that you have now or are you hoping to then move into something that can scale better than what currently works um we're, we have a somewhat pragmatic approach to this knowing that uh there's like assuming like under the assumption that blockchains will sort of blossom in the coming years like sol- scaling solutions will have to uh be you know uh taken on so to speak or like there has to be scaling mm-hmm. solutions and so yeah. instead of trying to like guess exactly what's the right um 
the right technology to approach for like the ultimate location layer that you know you can envision drones and all these autonomous agents utilizing at you know I don't know how many tra transactions per seconds. We're very pragmatic in that we just want to show that this works, even if it maybe initially is a little bit cumbersome to use, a little bit slow, even prohibitively expensive for certain types of applications. Because we believe that there's like, you know, one of the things that you have to do with blockchain technology is to sort of sell it as you go along. Like demand isn't always there. Like uh, there's a vision out there and you have to actually convince both users and uh, suppliers that this is going to be a useful technology. So with that in mind, we're, we realize that we can build this now with existing technology. And in fact, it's not even that of a crazy proposal in our, from our perspective. Um, we can do this with uh, Tendermint and we can do it with pretty much off-the-shelf radio technology. Will it be the penultimate realization of the phone protocol? No, but we'll tackle that you know, once that problem arrives. A little bit like the general approach of the Ethereum community itself, right? Mm -hmm. That's very much, that's very much a, a, like you said, a pragmatic approach to what's going on. And, and I think the, the right projects in the space are the ones that are thinking further off in the, in the future, building something that works now with the current technology and then scaling as the technology scales with it. And then, like you said, in the process of doing that, you kind of have to then convince people that what you're doing is going to be worth it, even if the current economics of how it works right now are, are enabling to the types of things you say you're going to be using them for, if that makes any sense. Um, I kind of want to, want to, want to shift gears into like, the, the technical stack and what you mentioned in the first part. And like you said, you're a, 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 a very heavy functional programming enthusiast and you've built a stack that kind of enables that for this space. Can you explain some of that for us, Christopher? Yeah, sure. So my background, my foray into, uh... Ethereum and blockchains in general was like I was working very early at Consensus where I was part of a sort of the the Haskell nerds or the functional programming people which you know we were counted on one hand at that time and uh, I immediately started working for a company called BlockApps mm -hmm. that basically from scratch built a Haskell Ethereum client um, and so that was a really interesting endeavor, um, something that I later moved away from. But a lot of my approach to software development has been colored from that uh, experience. Um, like I'm a, like a firm believer in that uh, you want to develop tools rather than uh, products in some sense. The products should basically just become a naturally fallout from uh, utilizing your tools once they're uh, uh, sufficient or uh, done well enough. And in my opinion, there's really no other, like if you're interested in developing tools for software development, um, there's no other place as vibrant and as interesting right now as the functional programming uh, community. Uh, I really see it as a sort of slow renaissance that's happening uh, we all know that in the in the front end development, uh, React and you know the the functional reactive patterns that have emerged uh, mm -hmm. on the front end, they all came from the functional programming community. They've sort of been there's a, a kind of shallow version of that that got adopted. Um, but functional programming and the formal methods and the mathematical ways of reasoning that underlies uh, functional programming sort of continues continues to um, create new ideas that tend to be really long-lived in software development in general. Uh, so I can't help but to just spend all of my waking time reading about new programming languages, new you know, theorem provers, or new ways that you can let the compiler do most of the work for you as a programmer instead of uh, doing it yourself. Um, so. It was really that kind of interest that prompted us then to, when we were faced with building a large-scale, sophisticated Ethereum application, to choose to 
actually build those building blocks and we ended up doing it mostly from scratch instead of kind of trying to use the tools that were available to us. Um, so to that end, we've developed, well, we took on the Haskell Web3 library that was um, initially developed by the ERA or IRA lab, uh, a Russian team of developers for IoT devices. Um, we sort of quickly became one of the, I think now we're probably the major contributors to that repository. Uh, we also early on made the decision to write our whole front end in a programming language called PureScript, which is, um, if you never heard about it before, it's sort of a Haskell without all the baggage of having been developed for 30 years and which compiles to JavaScript. Uh, for for PureScript, there was no Web3 or Ethereum libraries at all. So we kind of wholesale wrote the PureScript Web3 library as being very similar to the Haskell Web3 library from scratch. Um, yeah. I find that, I, I love this, the kind of the, the tooling um, rolling across different languages for this ecosystem because I've often... I've said this a lot on our, at least in this podcast and the other podcasts that I work in, is that the the intuition of the programmer um, and the language that they use makes a difference. So, like when you're using JavaScript, a JavaScript-like language to write smart contracts, you tend to think like a JavaScript programmer, which may not give you the right type of intuition for writing secure smart contracts. And I feel like functional programming languages at least put you in the right mindset on how you build smart or how you build things that you're you're writing. Um, in the right framework so that you can then you, your, your practices or, and how you build something tend to lead towards more secure things that smart contracts should be as opposed to maybe a front-end web app where failing is okay and Absolutely. things like that. And I, I, did, I wasn't sure if you have ever thought about something like that, but it's, it's something I'm personally quite passionate about and I feel like it should be expressed more and more and more in functional programming languages almost do that exactly yeah it, and, and you know what's also interesting is that it works both ways in that you know every other functional professional functional programmer developer that i meet at you know either the haskell meetups or you know some of the conferences around the world that a lot of them works work at blockchain startups now because it turns out that um the domain of blockchains and secure smart contracts is it's not that it's been solved by functional programmers um, it provides a pretty rich domain for uh, coming up with solutions within the functional programming domain uh, it wasn't solved before it might be one of the best uh, sort of toolkits to address it but it's really been a f uh, rich sort of um, back and forth between these two communities. Um, and it kind of turned out that like what, you know, 10 years ago, if you worked in, <coughs> you know, type theory and maybe formal verification, uh, you would be a pretty far out on the niche of any programming community. And now all of a sudden you're in the center of it. Um, and all of the tools that were developed for many years, in particularly in type theory, uh, which, if you're not aware of it, has a sort of a very natural connection to functional programming. Um, all of a sudden, all of those tools uh, become very useful. Um, we've yet to really uh, see the fruits of that, um, particularly in Ethereum. Uh, I kind of see Ethereum as a, a sort of an architecture that was, for better or worse, that didn't really take many of these lessons into account. But you can certainly see it in other blockchain platforms, such as Cardano and Cadena, and uh, possibly you know future Ethereum smart contract languages. Yeah, we've interviewed both of those guys, and they're very passionate about the same thing. Um, it, 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 you said you built this the stack to help you build out Foam. Have you? How much of this stuff is easy for someone to get their hands on and start using to then build things for themselves outside of Foam? Are these general purpose frameworks that allow you to then 
build a different application somewhere else or are they specific to foam? Yeah, I mean, so that's uh, something we've thought about. We've basically gone to lengths to make this as accessible as possible. Um, I mean, everything we do is open source. Uh, we have certain parts which, you know, are not open sourced yet because they haven't really been able to go <coughs> down to a library that's easily, easily digestible for the outside. Like, but that's, it's mostly my belief in that, like, it doesn't really make sense to open source something just for the purpose of open sourcing it. Unless it's a well-designed library, no one's going to really use it anyway. But every time we see an opportunity to refactor our code base and release a library, we've done so. So we have uh, these main libraries that I mentioned. Uh, we also have some more specific libraries that um, sort of around interacting with solidity contracts, around uh, connecting your blockchain applications to a legacy or <laughs> actually, or maybe not a legacy, but a standard sort of SQL database. Um, we've gone to lengths to make those as accessible as possible. My general uh, feeling is that if you're not comfortable, if you haven't already started programming in either Haskell or PureScript, I mean, I would actually recommend starting it PureScript before Haskell at this point because it's such a wonderful language. But if you had done neither of those, it can still be intimidating to approach your writing your blockchain applications using these tools. Uh, so that's kind of like the, what do you say? It's, it's the chicken and egg problem a little bit. Uh, and in <clears> fact, it's also been a, sort of an explicit policy of ours that whenever we see someone using our tools, we usually uh, try to approach them pretty quickly and ask them if they are looking for work. <laughs> um, so I can give a, a little bit context just to answer your question a, a little bit differently. We have like a functional Ethereum stack we've developed uh, that includes this PureScript Web3 library, but also um, a functional alternative to Truffle uh, called Chantrell um, and a tool called Clickbait, which allows you to deploy test blockchains really quickly uh, as a Docker image with pre-allocated pre Ether and preloaded libraries. So that itself is this general purpose Ethereum stack that uh, when the parts that are complete are currently open source as libraries and can be used for any um, purpose. But we, the way that we at Foam then utilize that stack is in the spatial index visualizer, which is a full stack web app, actually ultimately is a React web app. Um, and we have our custom way of building the spatial index. So we also have a developer portal there and access to the API for the front end and the Foam specific tools because we want to empower an ecosystem of Foam uh, powered applications. But uh, for all the previous kind of context of Christopher's um, description of the libraries, those are completely foam agnostic. Awesome. So I could go out there and play with this right now, assuming. So that's fantastic. But I think the thing that's kind of like immediately kind of like pops into my head. Uh, I'm sorry I dipped out there for a second. I was actually listening, but I was also reading the white paper in kind of skimming it and really kind of understanding a little more about the technology while on the call. I know it's a bit rude, but um, the, uh, the thing that caught my eye is the concept of the fraud proof for detecting whether or not somebody is an honest actor. Um, behaving on the system. Uh, obviously, the more dense the node network, you know, the easier it is to kind of spot things that are just inconsistent. But I'm kind of curious, what is the actual proof look like when somebody is 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 verifying that their you know in, in information is correct? Uh, so nobody's lying about where they are. Um, how do you how do you actually do that right now? Do I need an actual piece of hardware to report to the phone network? Um, and like, how do I interact with this on a user level? Yeah, I mean, that's like several questions. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can approach an answer. So, um, ultimately, the the if you have hardware, there's ultimately, uh, you know, a space time region that you would have to be in in order to be able to uh, participate in the challenge between the hardware beacons and the. Uh, you know, the message that gets produced uh, by the identity or the, the, the claimer of location, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of provides an upper bound. Um, so for in order to verify a claim like that, you would have to be have hardware. 
um, access. Uh, okay. So let's say I'm trying to mess with the hardware. I don't know why I would do that, but let's just say I, I noticed that you you've gone through great lengths to basically prove that that fraud happens. What is the what is the math behind that? What is that actual um, aside from just like time and space? Like, hey, I was here at this particular time in this particular space. Let's just say I'm trying to create a whole block of networks or even interfere with their traffic in some way. Um, you yeah, know, so, I yeah. mean, so there's there's two layers here, right? Like one is you as a you know, uh, like a user within a, a zone, right? So mm -hmm. the zone itself attests to your location. And because they depend on the, you know, the speed of light and so on, they can effectively create at the least a bounded region from which you have to be within in order to be able to respond. Okay. Now, so there's then comes questions such as like, well, what if some of the reported timestamps uh, that have been calculated within the zone are faulty, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the way that's resolved is that the zone itself, uh, each beacon, or we call them zone anchors, uh, has staked to the, um, to effectively staking to participating with the service level agreement to participate in the time synchronization protocol. So that means that not only does do the zone anchors try to verify you as a user who mm -hmm. wants to clone your location? They're constantly vigilant towards the other zones, zone right. anchors within the zone. So any given presence claim is only valid up to sort of um, the, they're only valid with respect to the validity of the zone. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's say let's say I'm in a zone, and this is this is really like like small radius, you know, validation. So it's all local localized sort of consensus, meaning they have to be within a certain region of each other in order to form this sort of validation network. Correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, let's say I'm um, I'm uh, I'm in this validation network. Uh, where am I committing my proof that? somebody is a good actor. I actually assume that I wouldn't have to submit a proof if they're a good actor. Where would I actually submit the proof if they're a bad actor? And what would that proof like look like? Is it an attestation? Like I need a certain number of people that agree in this local region that the person that a particular node is, is acting, is not synchronizing their time or not, not acting, uh, not, not reporting the correct, their correct GPS. Like how does this work? The zone are just logging like the raw, time data constantly uh -huh. in their shared state machine. And uh -huh. to ever get um, any revenue from customers or mining rewards, all that data is checked by another entity in our system called a verifier. And that's like a simple computational engine doing off-chain computation, running all these algorithms like time of flight, trial iteration, et cetera. Um, and because the zone anchors aren't supposed to move or change, um, mm -hmm. if they did, there would be an anomaly detection. So if you're suddenly <sighs> violating the laws of physics and they've been checking you over and over and over, and all of a sudden you're now somewhere else or, or people couldn't uh, find you and you're no longer in the log, you'll be caught in this kind of verifier stage. I see. So I had, I had actually a, 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 a mis misunderstanding there. I thought the verifiers and the anchors were one and the same. So the zone anchors are like validators in their own local tendermint chain. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're like nodes there. As part of the more global system, we have these verifiers who like read or subscribe to all these zones. Mm. And they're the ones checking the data and then ultimately Right now, we're exploring as a counterfactual verification um, mm. that they post those mm. proofs uh, that include that the zone has been correct. It shouldn't be slashed. It should be rewarded. And the final uh, Merkle roots of all the customer's presence data. And then those become first-class objects on this blockchain that can be referenced or revealed to other applications. Oh, wow. So what is the frequency of reporting here? Um, do you guys, like, how fast does this blockchain grow? Because this is, like, it seems like the more nodes you'd put out there, the absolute, like, you would, you would require a great deal of, uh, storage space just to just to keep this blockchain going. Is that correct, or am I misunderstanding that? Um, yeah, I mean, I can say. Uh, let's we preface this by, by I don't know, <laughs> um, <laughs> because ultimately, in the initial uh, uh, version of the protocol, we are looking at zones that operate more or less autonomously. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to solve 
the problem of localization with respect to one zone. So that means that assuming that the nodes are participating in the time synchronization correctly and reporting uh, honestly, and there's punishment within the zone if they fail to do so, you can uh, create a um, presence claim relative to that zone. The question to which how multiple zones, when they overlap, mm -hmm. uh, and to which extent they report their relative um, activities to one another, is, I wouldn't call it an unsolved problem, but it's not something we're focusing on right now. Because yeah, no. it, there's, there's like a natural kind of like scaling. Um, Prioritization. Yeah. This would benefit from a sharding scenario pretty pretty heavily, though, because like, so one of the interesting things that I, I I'm just gonna go out onto my sci-fi land like I always do. <laughs> this makes this makes Corey kind of roll his eyes every time, like, oh, here we go. But like, one of the <laughs> things that interests me with regard to uh, crypto economics on a global scale is like, if you know, obviously we don't want everybody storing all their information everywhere, meaning that. Um, there's no real advantage to, you might want instant access or some reasonable time access to access the information of somebody making a transaction in Portland, Oregon, while you're in New York. But frankly, if you're just trying to buy a Coke at a store, you don't really need to have that kind of information. Exactly. Traveling around the world, having these anchor points all around, and it knows where your device is. Let's assume we could get LoRa onto a, onto a cell phone for a instant, mm -hmm. which by the way, creepy with your system, but still kind of cool too. Um, you would actually have the, the ability to transfer your assets to a particular location because this particular device contains your, your wallet and that wallet is broadcasting its location to the local anchor point. So you can actually remove your transactional knowledge or transfer it to another location seamlessly if enough of these anchor points are densely located around the world, which I think is absolutely fascinating. Um, Going back to the the question of um, of uh, of you know basically how do you validate this information? It seems to me that that when somebody just appears out of nowhere, uh, that would be kind of problematic for this system. Um, uh, yeah. So, is there any way that somebody could kind of transfer on and off? Is there a benefit? Like this is this is okay. So I'm going in a lot of different directions here. I apologize. Popping back in, it seems to me like that would be like transferring your money from one shard to another, if yeah. that makes sense. So it almost is like you want to have geolocational sharding in your ideal system. Is that correct? So, I mean, I think we kind of, in a sense, have sharding in that, like, by default, uh, they're just not even connected, right? <laughs> right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're, they're only, currently, they're only connected through the, uh, the well, we're currently using Plasma to... Uh, coordinate the Tendermint blockchains, but like, you know, the staking is effectively coordinated on Ethereum, but like, there the different <laughs> state routes are not transferred between the different shards, quote unquote. You can start doing that, and then you have a sharding situation. Mm -hmm. um, but let me just preface this by well, also uh, quick interjection. You said the nightmare or the creepy situation in which phones have um, uh, LoRa chips. Yeah. It would actually not be creepy in the sense that uh, although you can always consume the radio uh, signals from the nodes surrounding you, mm -hmm. it's completely voluntary to respond to them in the two-way communication. Um, so it would enable you to sub com uh, make a, an anonymous or pseudonymous presence claim at any moment you want, but you in fact would not be forced to identify yourself at any time. Well, the reason I said that is because uh, we, as we've known, like we've detected, it's not actually that difficult to figure out who somebody is on a blockchain. I mean, it is kind of, but like if you give them one bit of information, they could kind of trace it back to you. Mm -hmm. um, so like if somebody's using this as their identifier for sending confirmation of location and it's tied to their wallet and their wallet's tied to a transaction, which ties it back to them, uh, they'd know who you are. And since it's localized in a specific region, somebody could pick up the signal and detect you, couldn't they? Um, well, I mean, I would say that, like, you can, you know, the, the analogy to wallet goes a little bit further in that, like, you could effectively create a unique signature for each time that you identify yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So I'd like to make, I, I, I like the idea of wallets and, like, how you think about um, 
you know, monetary transactions on blockchains because it's sort of like the fundamental building block that we are all used to. And it's worth remembering how Ethereum revolutionized uh, thinking about that in that it's, it's not just money, it's programmatic money, right? And it becomes right. this completely open platform in which like two completely desperate pieces of data can be chosen as inputs to a smart contract and a new functionality can be provided in a uh, permissionless fashion, right? So in some sense, you can think about location or presence claims as like simple transactions between wallets, but to what extent that they form a larger macro location data is in some sense up to the uh, developers of the foam platform. And not every location claim or presence claim is consumed by or have the same kind of um, constraints. Some of them might not need continuity over multiple zones because they are, uh, that's not important for them. It might right. be a trusted entity, or it might be something that just checks in and checks out. Mm -hmm. If someone wanted to, for example, create, and one of the early use cases we were playing with was to have, you know, people ask like, how can you prevent drones from flying here and there? Well, it mm -hmm. might be hard to prevent them from flying here and there, but you can certainly incentivize them to use flight paths, which are authorized. So then all of a sudden you want to have drones fly across a path and in order, you know, track uh, and create presence claim around the path. Uh, and for that use case, you would have a smart contract that it uses the presence claims as the first class primitive into the smart contract and, com smart contract and computes the verdict about the drone programmatically, right? Yeah. And in some sense, we're kind of leaving those higher level um, logics up to the developers. Um, I would also like to just add a few points that the signals are also encrypted when you're sending out. So someone, it'd be hard for someone to intercept your presence claim. Um, and to the question of what you were describing of an attack, that's kind of like a known attack in wireless systems called like a wormhole attack where someone is like appearing in different zones. Um, it would be possible to pull that off like in stationary devices in one-off, um, but because then, as Christopher just described, um, a lot of the applications will be like client-side verification and designing their own logic. So if you wanted to say a user to unlock this um, gaming item or be paid as a driver in a car, you actually may need to produce eight presence claims from throughout your route. And um, by extension, that means they would come from eight different zones and there's those all would be run by different people. So they be much harder to take over all of them. Um, and in addition, so because that app requires you to produce um, multiple presence claims throughout your path, it'd be very um, useless to just wormhole into one location and produce a presence claim there. Because maybe- Well, I was kind of thinking like hopping off a plane, I would suddenly produce a presence claim in a different area. But if you were there, then it's a valid presence claim. Yep, true, true, very true. Yep. Um, <laughs> so, no, I was thinking that, uh, so I was actually thinking in that context, I was saying that phones themselves could never be anchors or they, they would have to be sort of a validator system or something like that. Um, they would never be necessary. Or even then, I don't think they need to validate technically, correct? They would just need to make the claim. Yeah. So the customers, if the infrastructure is there and, uh, you know, the zone anchors are there and they mm -hmm. sign these service level agreements to promise to be there. So one zone might be for one month. The other one signed a one year commitment. Um, but as long as that infrastructure is there, if you have radio technology that can speak to your local zones, um, you're then eligible to purchase a fraud proof anonymous uh, claim about yourself right. and that attestation would then live on the blockchain and you could keep it private forever or reveal it to an app that required it. Yeah. And that's another interesting thing is that certain types of transactions would probably require a location proof, meaning that they would, they, you know, they would, you know, they would want, it, it would add a level of security that currently doesn't exist. So right now, if like somebody makes a ATM withdrawal, you know, the bank goes through their bank records in stream and then determines, hey, somebody made this bank withdrawal in Canada and you just made a purchase in um, in at Chipotle in Fairfax. So uh, we flagged your account for fraud. If you had proof of location of some sort, you could actually sort of, you know, no longer make those kind of those false transactions. And even if somebody wanted to steal your stuff, uh, meaning that they wanted to make a, you know, withdraw your money into Account. You can actually build a blockchain system as long as it exists. Another protocol or something baked into existing protocols, which would actually 
have some sort of fraud verification as it's on the base layer. I mean, the simple multi-sig wallet based on location says you can't withdraw unless there's three out of so three out of five in a specific location is a simple example of a very highly secure multi-signature wallet. Yep. Yeah, we think that there's really like a long tail of examples. Yeah. So it can be oh, like yeah. geofenced voting, um, like proving a train's late and being able to unlock a refund, things like that. There's a tremendous amount of application in this thing. I'm kind of curious about the infrastructure involved with running these anchor nodes is there a problem let's say if like my like say i run an anchor node at my house for some reason or another i don't know why i would do that but uh well that's a great place to be running it i i i hope to actually i have servers i don't know why i wouldn't run one i can buy the software and run it why what happens if my power goes out for a long time and i have a stake is that get slashed because i had a like from no fault of my own how does that work yeah, I mean, in theory, we're going to have slashing conditions for not fulfilling your service level agreement. Um, but because this, is, there's so many unknown unknowns of testing this at scale, uh, and the only way to really do so would be to be a government or have some sort of global incentive system. And so that's why we're launching with static proof of location for curating um, points that don't move and also signaling. So that's an incentive for people to start testing this hardware and be kind of reporting the results, running test networks, uh, and only through the community efforts would we be able to determine the final kind of slashing conditions because we don't know what if, um, you know, what happens when an earthquake occurs and everyone goes off. Do they all get slashed? Things yeah. like that are, are not really specified yet. Where, yeah, can, I, yeah. where can I go to That's learn right. more about running a node? Um, you can check our technical white paper. I know, Colin, you were just probably looking at the product white paper. Uh, we have a draft on our um, GitHub and you can share some links with some of our hardware partners from the Dash 7 uh, LoRa firmware about um, their vision of how to make more secure smart contracts using this technology as well. Uh, and we will be releasing basically access to the repository to test the Tenderman app with the f needed firmware to run on these kinds of devices. We're currently testing on like $50 based Arduino boards. Nice. So I want to go down a rabbit hole. Uh, I know it's towards the end, but uh, the uh, plasma. You're the first. You're the first person we've had on the show that's actively using the plasma uh, proposal um, in your in your system. You just mentioned. I didn't know that um, until just now. So, can you tell me a little more about how you're doing it? Are you doing sub plasma chains? So, for instance, uh, do you have like you know Brooklyn is one plasma chain and Manhattan's another plasma chain? How do you how are you doing it right now? And what do you think your plans would be for that kind of layer two scaling solution? Um, I would say that, uh, or Christopher, do you want to say something? Well, I want to say that I was, again, I would say I don't really know that yet. We're working together with Tendermint so that we're basically working only on the ABCI layer. Okay. And collaborating with them lets us kind of like postpone that part of the uh, investigation. So I don't have any really satisfactory answers to that. Um, and they're heavily yeah, involved in Plasma as, as, as Tendermint. We essentially take the definition of Plasma as like any child chain that offers the ability to um, exit even if a majority takes over uh, and use the security of the root chain. So that's how we imagine the Plasma construction. Most of the work ongoing on Plasma in the community is around the MVP, then Plasma um, Cash, then there was Plasma Debit. Mm -hmm. And those are all really centered around UTXO transactions. Uh, and I think we're one of the only people with this need of having um, not necessarily the Ethereum virtual machine, but a state machine uh, and that kind of logic there. And so the Tenderman team had uh, was participating in a lot of the Plasma developer calls of having a Plasma chain where the actual consensus of that plasma chain was Tendermint. Um, ultimately, we are also super interested in Cosmos um, that offers an interchain IBC blockchain layer. And so like Christopher said, we're really working just on the local kind of um, zone and uh, time syncing and blockchain and how that's all connected to a root chain is um, gonna be determined if we have multiple zones on a Cosmos-like system that do represent hierarchies of cities um, or if just actors can start service level agreements one-off as individual child chains. Um, so this kind of interchain construction is going to be an area of ongoing research. Um, but what we're building right now is the basically Tendermint and uh, radio logic for each individual zone. And that's part of that 
That's part of that initial scaling scenario you were trying to talk say earlier. You're, like your your project scales with how the technology scales. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, like you you, you got to start small. You got to start somewhere. Um, so that's that's really awesome. So what um what do you think uh, this will look like in the future? Uh, what do you hope it will look like in the future as we start seeing more of these nodes pop up? And um, can I use this outside of New York and get success? Um, yeah, the radios operate on ISM bands, like industry, science, and medicine. So they're permissionless to deploy uh, and don't, you don't need a special license to run them. Um, so you'll be able to test this in New York as well. I mean, to say it's like it requires a level of density that uh, you, you, ha you need to have like three nodes within a certain radius. So um, New York's a really good test spot for that because you're first off based there and second off, there's a lot of enthusiasts mm -hmm. there. Um, but I'm in the D.C. area. How do I get involved? How do I start testing with other people? Do I build a local community around this? Uh, yeah. Kind of like so, yeah, I think that's so I think what we're going to start seeing is that you'll have sort of clicks of functioning uh, proof of location. So when you get to New York City, you'll be able to prove your location relative to the nodes that have that are in operation there when you return to Washington, you might have set up your own set of nodes, so there might already be some operating ones, and you'll be able to prove that you're there. In between, there might not be any way for you to prove uh, that you're there. What we're, One of the sort of more interesting theoretical research uh, directions we have is we, we think we've solved pretty well a mining scheme that incentivizes spread of uh, nodes around the world. So we have a sort of spatially weighted mining reward, meaning that if you're in New York City, it's more beneficial for you, assuming that there is uh, demand for uh, nodes or proof, uh, location claims, and therefore nodes in New Jersey, to take your equipment there than to build a second node overlapping with the current one in New York City. Um, that's initially at least approached by our sort of spatially weighted mining rewards. One thing that I'm kind of curious personally about is to how we can extend this to not only have a spatially weighted mining reward, but also one that takes connectivity between zones into account. Because as I mentioned before, like for, for, for practical reasons, like currently each zone is somewhat independent. And we certainly have some ideas on how to compute uh, sort of values that measure connectivity and so that we can effectively create uh, mining awards that are also contingent on like how many other zones is your zone cooperating with. Uh, this is sort of like a, a research direction that we haven't really uh, taken seriously yet, but one that I'm personally really excited about because it points to some pretty interesting mathematics um, of how to calculate sort of sensor coverage uh, in uh, areas. And I think taking those kinds of, that kind of mathematics into mining rewards would be a pretty uh, uh, interesting game. Uh, just to your first point, um, how to get involved, that we do have like a growing, uh, we have over 20 global foam communities. Um, for example, Melbourne, Australia, um, Lisbon, California, and New York. You're welcome to start your own. Um, or when the protocol actually launches, if you want, testing to happen in DC, for example, you can also signal there and hopefully incentivize other um, protocol stakeholders to emerge. So what if, uh, just a business more question, like what if this is more of a utility and uh, I wanted to invest in your network and you guys throw up the nodes and I can actually stake in any one of your nodes at any time myself. Is that even a possibility? Is that something? Yeah, you would stake in, in Signal. So if you're a large stakeholder, you believe in the protocol, you can basically put all your tokens in Brooklyn and that basically puts a massive bounty in Brooklyn for miners to emerge there. And then you can also remove your signal and put them in different places. So there's a role for kind of passive um, stakeholders to incentivize growth as well. See, now that's really awesome to me because a lot of people don't want to manage the hardware, 
but they want to invest in the protocol anyway, and they want to see the rewards that come from that. So I, I could see that as being a very, very uh, interesting, interesting for the casual user to kind of uh, also still participate in the network and, um, and still get some of the incentivization out of it, but also share their incentivization with people who are kind of running nodes, if that was even a possibility. Uh, but I don't know how that would kind of work, because if you're running the node, there's really no point in not staking your own coins in it. So. Uh, just a thought process I'm kind of going now. No, this is really cool. I really like what you're doing here. I think the implications for supply chain are massive. So um, video games are cool and all, and like Pokemon Go and whatnot, and geocaching and that kind of thing. But when we're talking about the transfer of goods from one place to another in a completely decentralized manner, um, having the ability to know where something is at any given time would allow people to do mapping and tracking of particular items uh, to a high degree. And right now, the best way we can do that is through GPS and then trusting the central GPS system. Um, by removing that central trust authority, I really feel feel like you've decoupled uh, supply chain from even like necessarily uh, um, satellites potentially um because we could we could actually see where our where our goods are flowing and when they're flowing through the actual full supply chain map which is just i mean tremendous to be able to just be like ups where is my shipment now and it not only tells you it's in route it tells you where in route it is um and you're not actually relying on you know ups gps tracking system or anything like that it could actually just be something that's completely decentralized and trustless and free of, of any one particular central authority to maintain and keep that network going. I think that's fantastic. Um, and I, I think it would just improve the efficiency of overall supply chain in general. So I'm really excited, especially for that use case. And many, many more. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, uh, I'd like to, I'd like to start to like kind of wrap this up. Um, is there anything else that we should have asked you that we didn't get and we didn't get the chance to that you would have liked us to? I can just add a closing note that um, other ways to participate will be through the um, static proof of location, which is ways to curate the points of interest, and that'll be launching to mainnet this summer. Uh, and we have a token sale happening uh, at the end of this July, and we're part of the Token Foundry Standards and Brooklyn Project for launching essentially a consumer token. Um, we're not trying to distribute it to speculators and have even a smart contract enforced proof of use to um, actually have those purchasers help build out the map before they can transfer the token. So that's really our launch plan that's happening uh, now. And uh, yeah, really what we discussed on this call is part of the vision for the entire consensus driven map of the world of home. Outstanding. So how are, just out of curiosity, how are you guys funded? Is it purely through the ICO or do you have investors or how does that, how does that, uh, how are you guys uh, keeping the lights on? Uh, we had a seed investment round uh, last year and we're currently having a token sale this month. Awesome. Very cool. All right. Well, listeners, if you enjoyed this, click the like button, hit the subscribe button, tell your friends, tell everybody, you know, Put it on Reddit, put it on Twitter, whatever you got to do, do it. We appreciate you, you two guys coming on and uh, kind of sharing what you're doing. I, I really like the novelty of, of what you're doing and especially like kind of the, the, the framework in which you're doing it. It's using all the available technology um, kind of cohesively to build something that's greater than the sum of its parts, I, I, I think. And uh, I look forward to seeing this utility pop up to allow me to build better things and everyone else to be able to build better things that we can do now. So, Absolutely. This is a bold vision, and I really like that you guys are just tackling it because somebody has to, and it's going to happen. So I'm really glad you guys came so early, especially because this is going to require a lot of research still, but the work you're doing is fantastic. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for having us on the show.